0: Well, hello, this is going to be a show about dust, but before we plunge into dust, figuratively, I want to bring up something else. I want you to take note of it. I want you to share uh, your thoughts with me about it, because it's a mystery that I've been thinking about for a couple of weeks now, and it happened again today. And here's the phenomenon. All right. You hear a word that you've never heard before. You learn a word that you've never known before or a proper name and and, and you encounter it for the first time. And then eight to ten hours later, you encounter it again in a completely different context from a completely different source. Tell me that doesn't happen all the time. It happened to me today. Uh, There's a website called Roads and Kingdoms, which I absolutely in all my life never heard of. And in two different ways I heard about it today. It's very interesting. I don't know what it means. But you can bet we'll be dealing with it on some future show. But today's show is about dust. Uh, and the reason that we're doing a show about dust, we actually did a show about dust many years ago. But A, we don't remember anything about it. And B, there's an awful lot of things to consider. And I have to say that I got started down this road because one of my students, I have to give a shout out to Max Soberman, uh, one of my students from a course that I taught a couple of years ago had done an entire paper, a, a final paper on newsletters. And he mentioned there's a newsletter about dust. And, of course, I had to read that newsletter, and that explains the presence of our first guest. Before I bring her aboard, though, let me say the other guests will include a cleaning expert and advice columnist and host of the podcast, Ask a Clean Person, Uh, and then an artist who works in dust. There are a lot of artists who have used dust as a medium, and I think that's kind of fascinating, too. But we are going to begin with Jay Owens, writer and media research director at Pulsar Platform. She writes the newsletter series about dust called Disturbances, It's about dust and so much more, but it is about dust. And so, first of all, Jay Owens, welcome to our conversation.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me here. It's a great pleasure to talk about my favorite strangest topic.
0: Right. So it became your favorite strangest topic, partly as a result of some Marcus Aurelius-like meditations that you were doing sitting on a couch in your own flat where there was dust. And as I understand it, you started to wonder, what is dust and where does it come from? But there's no easy answer to those questions, is there?
1: There really isn't, and calling it Marcus Aurelius-like uh, meditations is exceptionally flattering, uh, because I would normally call it just flat-out procrastination.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, he procrastinated a lot too. He was supposed to build Hadrian's Wall and he didn't get it done. Anyway, go ahead. Tell Very us more. Tell us, tell us more about these. Uh, wh- wh- tell, us, tell us more about what you wanted to know in the first place about dust.
1: I just think I wanted to know what on earth it was doing in my flat. and i felt rather oppressed by it i was cross with it because you know i lived on my own this was about 10 years ago and i was doing a master's degree in london and i lived on my own in this new-built studio flat and you know i'm quite a clean and tidy person And so I thought I ought to have a clean and tidy flat, but I did not. And, you know, each time I would be sitting on my sofa trying to think up an important thing to research and just get distracted by the dust bunnies under my table or the sort of the film of filth across my bookshelf. And I was like, where is this coming from? And, you know, why does it have to keep getting in my way like this. And so I just started thinking about the sources of it, how it could come in and and what it meant that it was haunting my space. However much I tried to clean it up, it just kept coming back. Um, I could try and control my environment, but yet the dust was always going to win. And
0: so that's really got me. What got me started thinking about dust. So Jay Owens, one of the um, perhaps one of one of the I don't know, con- consolations of this is that you discovered there were other people who were asking themselves similar questions, including John Larson, a musician whose interest in dust led him to collect hundreds of kilograms of dust samples from a variety of environments. Did he help you understand a little bit more, sort of where all the dust is coming from?
1: Oh, he's a very interesting chap. So John Larson is a Norwegian jazz musician who, I guess, must have just caught up with the same fascination as me. But I was started off thinking about domestic dust, whereas he was really interested in space dust. And he'd heard about all of the research that NASA were doing, like sending out um, satellites to try and intercept cosmic dust um, trails you know, out in far, far reaches of the solar system. and he thought, well, what about the meteorites that fall to earth, the micrometeorites, the really, really tiny ones? And he discovered that you could find them in the dust on rooftops and in car parks and just in the most absolutely ordinary places. And so he became an expert in the way that this astonishing space dust, the stuff from the most far away in the universe, turns up in you know in, in the filth in the corner of, of an ordinary car park or on your, on your windowsill. So he was thinking about the biggest possible scales and then the smallest possible ordinary places.
0: Right. I mean, in addition to solar radiation and all the forms that it takes, dust is the other thing that comes from space. We get like 100 tons a day, something like that.
1: Yeah, surprisingly huge amount. It's just that and the solar radiation that gets through the atmosphere, and you know, that, and the very, very occasional meteorite. So it's the kind of way that you know the uh, the universe talks to Earth, really.
0: And and I guess that then, then then as you've suggested, turns out that space dust is not all just one kind of thing. There's dust that's so to speak from the neighborhood, right, from the solar system, and then there's interstellar dust too.
1: Yeah, exactly. So whether it's coming in from sort of meteorite rings out past Mars or further out, the the Kuiper Belt, or whether it's actually is the stuff that could come from the furthest parts of the solar system and actually be the source of information about uh, what the universe was like in its very, very earliest days.
0: So, but when you're looking at the dust in your apartment, I mean, some of it probably is. From, you know, a belt near Neptune or something. But is all of it from there? I mean, or is there a much more pedestrian explanation for where your own dust is coming from?
1: Unfortunately, just a teeny tiny part of it is space dust. Mm -hmm. There's no really authoritative sources about exactly what your domestic dust is made up from. It really does vary a lot by location, but a sort of one chunk of it is from you yourself, from your skin falling off from your hair, um, from the sort of the fibers from your clothing and stuff and the furniture eroding away. Quite another big chunk is mineral dust of various sources, which comes in through your windows mostly. Um, So from blown soil, particularly if there's sort of concrete and cement dust from building sites, is a particularly pervasive sort of dust. And then third, you've got um, often pollution-based sources from, you know, cars and lorries and things going past on the road and the the results of internal
0: combustion. So... I'd also like to talk about dust. Uh, It's impossible to think about dust without thinking about mortality. There's a way in which, I mean, obviously, from dust we came and to dust we shall return. But more than that, I think that when you really start thinking about mortality on a mass scale, you start thinking about dust. I mean, between the wars, between the two great wars in particular of the 20th century, there were a lot of people thinking about dust. Eliot in the wasteland says, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind. You or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. And and I was down in Ground Zero in, in 9/11 pretty quickly after uh, the disaster. And there was just this particulate stuff that was just in the air all the time. And and you know even on that day, people were just walking around covered uh, with dust. And as the dust sat in the haze in New York for months and months, I mean we we came to understand that the, it, part of it was people, was sort of pulverized people. I'm sorry to prattle on about this, but I have to tell you one more thing, which is I had this mystical dust experience. I was back at Ground Zero of 9-11 a year later, and we had kind of set up shop to do a day of programming uh, right from the site, and there was this dust it was this kind of reddish-colored dust, and we were in a building that had big holes in the walls where the debris had been launched uh, like catapult loads of, as the as the big buildings came down, and the wind was just swirling all day, and it would dive into the ground and scoop up this red-brown dust and loft it up to where we were sitting, and it would twirl in the air and form all these ghostly eel-like shapes. And it really felt, I felt very much communicated with by this dust. And obviously, so I will stop prattling now, but but dust and mortality, I mean, they're so linked, right? Gosh,
1: that's a beautiful recollections from from nine eleven, And that sense of kind of the mystical experiences that we have with it. Um, you know, I, I have stories of my own from, from traveling in California and realizing that I had to think more about this substance from seeing, you know, dust devils dust dance at the side of the road. It's, it's frightening but beautiful stuff. It, 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 you think about, you know, it's, it's not just your body decaying at the end of life and potentially, you know, if we could be cre- cremated, but it forces you to confront the ways that we're decaying every single minute, you know, that, that we are, um, part of us is decaying even even as we continue to live. and. You have to you know, face up with the inevitability of your mortality, that we can't think of ourselves as absolutely sort of, you know, perfect and flawless. But actually that um, you know, those endings um, and that becoming, you know, sort of gray nothingness is, is really happening continuously to us.
0: Right. I mean, there's a sense of the self. Well, uh, I think Derek Parfit, the philosopher, he, he sort of. I, this is my metaphor, but he kind of says, don't think about uh, about yourself as this stable thing, but more like a pot of chili on the stove and you ladle some of it out and you put more ingredients in and the pot just stays there being kind of emptied and added to, you know, for decades and decades and decades. And that's what the self is. And dust, Jay, I would think is the medium through which that happens, right? We're transferring out and transferring in.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. There's this kind of permeability between us and the world. The way we're breathing in particles of dust every day, um, and allowing you know mineral and our environment is coming into our bodies and into our lungs. You know, often with with awful health consequences, unfortunately. That we're learning more and more about the awful consequences of air pollution um, and the oxidative stress of some of some of the tiny particles and pollution. But we're bringing the environment into our lungs, and at the same time, we're sort of flowing back out into it and and the sense of us as separate from the world you know you think too long about dust and you you can't see yourself as separate from the world you know you're just a little uh, concentration of matter but we keep on flowing backwards and forwards
0: yeah, I I would read about the Burning Man festival that it is constantly assaulted by these dust storms, but if you're sort of part of the Burning Man festival and you understand what it's all about, you don't go inside and hide from the dust storms, you put on a mask and you experience art during the dust storms. I think for the reason that you're saying that that notion of the separation of the self as distinct gets even more erased if you're standing in a dust storm looking at all kinds of wild art. But but the good news, Jay, is that we don't have to die anyway. Right. Because neural dust and smart dust is somehow or other going to extend our consciousness beyond these, you know, pathetic fleshly shells. So I'd never heard of smart dust or neural dust until I started reading your work. You better tell people about this.
1: Okay, great. So smart dust and neural dust are these two sort of technologies for like micro, microelectronics. It's the idea of making sensors that are so small they're sort of the same size as dust, you know, beyond smaller than a millimeter in scale. And that what this enables was the idea that sensors could be placed anywhere and everywhere, that we could have a sort of pervasive computing environment from sensors in the brain, being able to look at how neurons are communicating to each other, or to manage bodily processes, to, to track our health, or the idea of sensors, either for surveillance purposes or just, you know, scattered all over your car to check it's running as most efficiently as possible. Um, and so these technologies that scientists have been working on for sort of 20 years or more, trying to shrink electronics, to get them to like the real physical limits of computing technology, to build the smallest possible processes and trying to make them smaller and smaller and smaller um, until they can become actual dust. And, and then the computer stops being a thing and, and starts being something sort of diffuse in the, in the world around us.
0: I don't know how I, I know from reading your newsletter, I think how you react to that. But give me a little bit about how you feel about that.
1: Well, I have my own sort of uh, political orientations, let's say, and um, surveillance is not necessarily a word I react to terribly positively. Um, I think you have to look at the power relations of, you know, who is controlling the dust, who is receiving the information from it, who is benefiting from it, and who are the people being tracked and surveilled. And... Um, in our imperfect world as it is, you know, that power is not going to be distributed evenly, which makes um, a sort of surveillance dust, a, a potentially extremely oppressive Orwellian sort of thing. But the other interesting thing about these dust is is that the smart dust and neural dust are sort of dreams and nobody's ever ever made anything dust scale. Both they're, they're sort of almost nearly impossible technologies, almost failing technologies, they're still the dust we have is still twenty times bigger than being really dust scale. And the physical challenges, the the technical material science challenges of trying to build something this small, borderline insurmountable. You know, you can't really put dust into a brain. You don't really want to be opening up a healthy brain and putting sensors into it. You know, they'll corrode. um, You'll get awful infections. So there's something like, I also enjoy the paradox or I enjoy the sort of the resistance of the body and of the material limits um, in a way that it makes these these technologies actually, there's a sort of quality of, of failure and waste and decay to it, um, as, as, as an imagination that maybe maybe never can't exist, and I find that an interesting paradox and tension.
0: Right. I mean, first of all, I can tell you, your brain is going to start turning to dust all by itself. You don't need to go outside and get uh, other kinds of dust. Uh, Arguably, the other other kind of dust will make you smarter or make you immortal. But I would agree with you that I'd... Well, you say, you talk about the transhumanist desire to be, quote, beings of pure data untethered from the vulgar mortality of the body. I've actually offered to have my consciousness uploaded to an android. But that's not really, you know, I mean, just in the same sense... Jay, that we were talking a few seconds ago, you know, dust is part of what connects us to the reality of who we are and what we are, which is, you know, kind of a term limited uh, being, right? We're not going to live forever.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think it's like I love the tension between our fantasies of technology that is going to make us immortal in these ways. And the more and more you look into the realities of, you know, how your snazzy new iPhone gets manufactured or what happens to electronic goods when they get old and they get thrown away. It turns out everything starts with dust, it ends with dust, and it keeps on bringing these things back to sort of reality and, and this this kind of more the inherent limits of materiality. Which, which people dream of transcending, but that uh, doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon.
0: Right. So one of the great paradoxes is that people who re- there are people who really want to get dust out of their environments. And, I mean, whether it's NASA, you know, wants to have a cosmic dust laboratory, if they're going to study t- cosmic dust, they can't have other dust around. They've got to absolutely make sure it's dust-free, so only the dust they want to look at is the dust that's there. But it, in a much more prosaic way, this is very much the story of these devices that we carry around in our pockets, right? I mean, the, the, you write about the iPhone as, to a certain degree anyway, a battle against dust. Tell us about that.
1: So, like, I feel like the iPhone is sort of definitive technology of the 2010s, you know. It's what makes our current society very different from the one I grew up in not, not so long ago, I hope. And that it allows levels of mobility and communication that we, you know, are completely different to even sort of 15 years ago. And the sort of the tactility of this phone I hold in my hand, where it's sort of so smooth. Bruce Sterling calls it the fondle slab. It's been immensely carefully designed to feel sort of friction free and to feel as just definitively modern as it can. And, and much of this is material. It's about the glass on the top. It's about the aluminium housing. It's about, you know, Apple with each new phone release comes up with a sort of newer and shinier technology, sort of the jet black finish um, of a couple of iPhones ago, which was even shinier than anything they'd made before and they're making this in you know in the iphone factories is made it's all polished using dust there's fake diamond dust cubic zirconia is used to polish the aluminium housing to get it as absolutely smooth as possible before the layers of um dye and color are put into it you know it's it's polished again with magnetized iron particles to give it an extra sheen and so in the process of making it shiny it's like the, the least shiny stuff in the world possible dust <laughs> is, is how you get there and I, I love paradox and tension, so that just you know amuses me and fascinates me.
0: Well, that's also the, our our notion of what is pristine, and so the notion of the iPhone, and you buy it, you know, I think, in this white box, you know, which also suggests a an unblemished quality and you open up the white box and there's this beautiful, as you say, completely immaculate looking thing, you know, and this is something that we've attached a great deal of value to. Although I kind of wonder about that, too. I mean, you know, I almost even wonder where that came from. If you think of everything that, you know, was sacred I mean, Jesus probably spent most of his life covered in dust. When did we? I don't expect you to know the answer to this question, but how did we decide that dust was such a bad thing that, that really the most sublime condition something could attain would be to be dust free?
1: wow i mean there's an intellectual history question yeah. um i think there's probably a you know, big philosophical answers there about the sort of the enlightenment and the idea of of man as a, a being of pure reason somehow separated from sort of the vulgar mortality of our bodies and, and material life but like more practically what i do know a bit about is the history of housework yeah. and particularly the Sort of move from the late Victorian period into the first half of the 20th century, when a lot of de- domestic technologies were developed. You know, the things that really make my grandmother's life completely different from her grandmother's life. That you know, the invention of the washing machine and the Hoover and um, you know microwaves and things like that. And what happened, particularly in the 1950s, was that you have a whole generation of you know men come back from the war and the women have been doing all of their jobs. So you've got this employment crisis and you kind of need to make some jobs for the boys. So we end up with this kind of housewife ideology that women should go back into the home and should use this amazing new consumer technology, you know, all of the hoovers and all the vacuum cleaners, the, um, the washing machines. And in the 1950s, the standards for housework just kind of accelerate and... I did some research during my master's on 1950s housework manuals and the kind of daily routines they prescribed for housewives. And it was a full eight-hour working day, at least, spent cleaning, you know, a three-bedroom detached home that you should be, you know, you should be dealing with dust for hours a day of hoovering every surface, of of dusting every mantelpiece. And... This kind of ridiculous cleanliness standards were kind of pretty much invented then by a combination of capitalism to sell more cleaning products and to encourage people to invest in these new technologies and a kind of gendered ideology that said we need to make some jobs for the boys so we've got to find something else for women to do. Um, so yeah, 1950 would be my year I put, the uh, the marker I put in the sand for the idea of like obsessive domestic cleanliness really became entrenched.
0: Well, and then, as you've written about also, uh, as we begin to think about the future, first of all, if you think about almost any representation of science fiction that's not totally dystopian, it is everything sort of clean and smooth, you know, and there are almost no angles for anything to catch in. But you write about Corbusier's use of glass and air. I would throw Philip Johnson into that mix, too. That notion that the city of tomorrow, the, the domicile of tomorrow, would be a place which essentially separates. You from the dust and chaos of the outside world, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And you know, Le Corbusier was, was fascinated by glass. He wanted gleaming crystal towers. Um, he had, what's it, the law of Ripplein, I think it is, which is the idea of putting a coat of whitewash over everything, so that it's these sort of, you know, these flat, pristine white surfaces to allow this very kind of calm, minimal life. Um, he and Marie Kondo might have been friends, I think. And that again, that kind of interwar ideology that our environments are perfectible. You know, it's, it's a reaction against some of the Victorian bourgeois home that was, you know, very chintzy, very ornamented and, you know, probably gathered dust ridiculously. So his architecture was, was the sort of total opposite of that in trying to build this optimised, you know, machine for living in. The idea that we could we could have that perfect control over our environments.
0: Well, good luck with that. We're going to take a quick break here. Jay Owens is going to stay with us. Uh, she writes a newsletter that you should be subscribing to. Uh, it's about dust. It's called Disturbances. It's as you can tell about much more than dust. When we come back, we'll add a cleaning expert to find out whether the quest to end dust is still completely futile. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham, Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new, state-of-the-art destination for healing.
1: Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture, so it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal.
0: For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging.
1: Many individuals traveled to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford Healthcare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close
0: by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. We're back. We're still talking about dust. We're going to be talking about dust until the show's over. So uh, Jay Owens is still with us, writer, media research director at Pulsar Platform. She writes a newsletter series about dust called Disturbances. And now joining us, Jolie Kerr, cleaning expert and advice columnist at The Inventory and the host of the podcast, Ask a Clean Person. She's also the author of My Boyfriend Barfed in My (laughs) In fact, uh, and other things you can't ask Martha. She is the resident cleaning expert for The New York Times. Oh, I would really recommend vacuuming around Gail Collins's desk then. Um, so uh, Julie Kerr, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So uh, earlier, just a few minutes ago, uh, Jay Owens was, was talking about the 1950s and this you know, this notion that was really kind of sold to the American public. that The woman should be staying home fighting this battle against dirt and grime and dust and anything else that might accumulate on surfaces, even if that amounted to an eight-hour day uh, of doing nothing but. So I, I don't know. How do we think about dust these days? Is Are we still as uh, hostile towards dust as we are? as we always were, never well, was? Well,
2: I, 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 think, I think most people don't feel super great about dust. I do think uh, we are well away from the days where we are expecting women to stay home to dust for eight hours a day. Although I have to say, as a, as a woman and a person who works from home uh, and who works with dust a lot, I guess maybe I'm, I'm holding the cause back. Um, although that's, that's really just a joke because I actually spend a lot of my time um, writing about cleaning for men. It's part of um, the work that I do. Um, I actually wrote a column all about dust for Esquire when I was still a columnist there um, that, that came out of a conversation I had had with one of my colleagues who he just said, he was like, Jolie, dust, what, what's up with dust? Like it was like a Seinfeldian moment. Um, what is the deal with the, with the dust? And I think the thing is about dust is that they are kind of two different sorts of people in the world. There are people who see dust and then there are people who just don't see dust. And if you're the latter bully for you, because it's not going to bother you, um, hopefully you've partnered up with someone who also doesn't see dust because it might drive them crazy if they're a, a dust seer to live with a not dust seer. But a lot of us are dust seers and we and we see it, we notice it, it, it frustrates us, it maybe grosses us out. Um, so there are there is a, a need to dust from time to time for those of us who are dustiers, And even for those of us who are not dustiers, it's a good thing to dust um, somewhat regularly because it's also a health thing, right? You don't yeah. want to be inhaling so much dust. It's a pollutant, of course. Um, and that's especially true of people who have um, respiratory issues or other compromised immune system issues.
0: So I'm going to go back to Jay uh, Owens for a second, uh, and Jay, I want to ask you about one of the many dust experts that you've uh, managed to find, Helen Lloyd, a dust researcher at uh, London's National Trust. And what does she do? She, I gather she re- researches the different rates at which dust settles in historic houses?
1: That's right. She's rather brilliant. She's known as Britain's most powerful housekeeper and she does sort of scientific research on dust accumulation for the national trust and for english heritage which is these organizations that manage buildings that are hundreds and thousands of years old and they need to know how often they're supposed to clean their libraries and clean the tables and clean the carpets and things like that because these are all very historic and, and delicate materials and if you clean them too much they're going to disintegrate and then if you don't clean them enough dust is going to stick and mix with the humidity and and sort of turn into this kind of cementated um, real problem for conservation so she does this research and sort of puts like sticky flypaper up at different levels in the building and different each shelf in a library to understand how fast dust collects there and then you can build a really scientific timetable for how often each level and each part of the room needs to get cleaned so it's it's wonderfully obsessive but such a good Um, I should should
2: say, I actually have um, the National Trust book on cleaning, and it is marvelous. It is probably the most fascinating book I own in my collection. Um, There are instructions on how to clean stuffed squirrels. Uh, It's just just a marvelous, marvelous book. It's very hard to find. Um, But if people are interested in um, in learning more about um, all of the skills that they have in terms of homekeeping for the National Trust, uh, they should look
0: for that book. I should say that I used to own a stuffed squirrel and I never cleaned it. Um, its name was Lester. So
2: I Good, that's a good name for a stuffed squirrel, but you should have taken better care of him. I guess
0: so. I, I, although I guess I have to ask why. And, and so, Jolie, I, I'm not just being argumentative about this. I mean, th- there this is a show, uh, apparently, an episode about paradoxes. So one of the paradoxes is that many things that you might do to be healthy will also encourage dust. If you open your windows and let fresh air in, which I think most of us agree is probably better than a tightly sealed environment where there's not a lot of uh, new air circulating in, but if you open those windows up, dust is going to come in, uh, but, and, but and we also know that if you make things too clean, I mean, there's all this research about the biome now, right, that, you know, if everything's too clean, you don't build up any kind of resistance, you don't have enough flora and fauna inside you uh, to repel various invaders. So, so Jolie, tell me how you think about those paradoxes.
2: Well, I, you know, again, I think it goes back to the the notion of the, the dust dustiers and the non-dust and then taking your own personal health issues into consideration. If you don't see dust and you are an average, healthy adult, then don't dust. The dust isn't going to kill you, and it's not bothering you, and I don't have to live in your home, so don't dust. <laughs> if, if you are a person who sees dust and you're bothered by it and you're, you're an adult, again, with respiratory issues or, or allergies, I'm a person with allergies, uh... then then dusting regularly is probably going to be more important to you both for your uh... enjoyment of your environment and also for your health
0: i mean there is you know back to some of the stuff that jay was saying earlier jolie there is People attach some kind of morality or value or ethical standing to all this. Uh, I was I remember being told a story. I think of a mother in law visiting her son and daughter in law's house for the first time, or or and maybe meeting somebody there as she walked in and saying, "Oh, how very nice!" Too stops, drags finger along the top of lampshade, glances at finger, meet you, uh, and, and and there is that whole idea, right, that you're a better person if one can't drag one's finger over the top of your lampshade and come up with a finger full of dust.
2: Sure, we've, we've been convinced of that because of, you know, essentially the saying that cleanliness is next to godliness. I personally think that that's hogwash. I also think that that woman who ran her finger over a stranger's uh, lampshade after being kindly invited into her home uh, is immoral because she's rude and a bad house guest. Um, so I, I, I know where the notion comes. I, I have to say, I personally don't, don't subscribe to it at all. I am a very, very clean person, uh, as you would imagine, based on the work that I do, uh, and, and that it has no, no bearing on any of the rest of the way that I live my life. Um, and, I, and I certainly, when I talk to people, um, am always pushing back on the idea that there's somehow some, some virtue attached to me by dint of my, my work and how I live, because there's not. I'm, I'm a very unvirtuous woman, to be
0: blunt. All right. So we'll, we'll come back to your uh, lack of virtue in just a second. But uh, let me just go let's back to just, <laughs> Okay, let's My not. My
2: mother might hear this.
0: All right, exactly. So let's go back to Jay for a second. I, I'm interested to know, after all this time, after all this time writing about dust and dust's various virtues and vices, I know, do you have any kind of different relationship with the dust in your house than you did on that day sitting in your flat on your couch thinking about dust? How do you feel, Jay, about the dust in your life now?
1: Well, I can't say I'm any cleaner exactly, but I have to say the more I've learned about dust, the more I have started to worry about it. Um, particularly looking at issues about sort of um, plastics and looking at some of the pesticides uh, that can be in dust, the more I learn about air pollution and the health impact that, that has. Um, I used to think that dust was just this purely aesthetic issue, you know, and it wasn't really dirty, it wasn't really grimy, it was just kind of kind of fluffy and cute and different. But actually, it, it carries within so much of the sort of the the wreckage of modernity and and the. Um, strange new substances we've created that are maybe not very good for health. Um, And so I certainly think I should clean more, though whether I'm actually doing that is
0: something of another matter. All right, well, Jolie is here to help. And I think we need to run through a few good tips. Uh, You've accumulated, Jolie Kerr, quite a few uh, tips about how to deal with dust in your time as the host of the podcast, Ask a Clean Person, uh, and uh, as the resident cleaning expert for the New York Times. So so give us a few, just uh, your favorite Uh, dust-beating tips?
2: Sure thing. Um, So there are a few things you can do to reduce dust. Uh, You will will never be able to eliminate it um, for for two reasons. First of all, dust comes from external sources, but also internal sources. We we ourselves are producing dust. Um, I have a a very uh, grotesque way of describing it for people because it makes them laugh. I tell people to think of dust as being like dandruff for your home. Um, And and really, in many ways, it is very much like dandruff because it is oftentimes comprised of our skin, our dander, our hair, etc. This is especially true if you have pets in the home who are adding to that dust. Um, With that said, one of the things that you can do to at least reduce the external dust that's coming in is to make sure that your windows and doors and any unused vents are well sealed up. That will help to cut back on the amount of dust that's coming in. Another very simple thing that you can do to cut back on the dust is to put um, bristled mats down on entranceways so that you can brush your shoes off before you walk over the threshold and bring outside grime into the home. Uh, Another thing, if you do have pets, is to groom them regularly. That will really help to cut down on the dust. But dust will happen, right? Yeah. Dust is going to happen no matter, no matter what. Um, and so there are some things that I can suggest um, in terms of products to, use to eliminate the dust.
0: Yeah. T- talk about the dryer sheets. I love this.
2: Yes. I, I figured you would love that. Let me actually start by saying that actually really the best dusting tool um, are either dusting cloths or microfiber cloths. Uh, they have a little bit of um, essentially a, a static electric charge to them that regular cotton doesn't have that will, that will sort of um, will pick up the dust like a magnet. Mm. Um, similarly to this, dryer sheets are a great dusting tool. Dryer sheets have that same sort of staticky picking-upping quality that dusting cloths have, Um, but they also have one other little feature to them, that when you run them over a surface, they leave behind a very, very thin coating of the fabric softener that's contained within the dryer sheet. And what that does is it creates almost like a little barrier to dust. The dust won't develop as quickly as it would if you just dusted with uh, dusting cloth. Um, I particularly like this technique for baseboards, which are a thing that most people don't particularly enjoy dusting because it's very physically awkward and uncomfortable to do so. So if you can stave off the need to dust those baseboards for a little bit longer by using the dryer sheets, then by all means, I think that people should do so. And it's a neat trick. Um, one other tool I love, uh, both both for form and function, is I love a feather duster. I think feather dusters are marvelous tools. I think we should be bringing them back into favor. They work very, very, very well. They're eco-friendly because, of course, you can use them over and over and over again. Uh, you clean a feather duster um, by running it under some cool water and massaging a little bit of dish soap into it and then rinsing it very well and letting it air dry. Uh, so you can you can buy one feather duster. usually runs in about the $15 range. And use it basically for your whole life if you take good care of it. Um,
0: Especially if you're a person without virtue. I mean, you could probably use it for all kinds of things, right?
2: Yes! Now that brings me to the next part, <laughs> which is that using a feather duster is hilarious. It always makes me feel like I'm the character Yvette from Clue. And I just love that. There, There is something a little naughty about a feather duster. There's something a little sexy. We we associate them with the French maid stereotype. Um, and so by all means, I, I think that... Um, Using a feather duster, again, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of form and function that really can, oddly enough, make dusting fun for people.
0: All right. Well, if you want to discover anything else about Jolie Kerr and her attitudes towards dust and cleaning, uh, you should seek her out. She's the cleaning expert and advice columnist at The Inventory. The host of the podcast, Ask a Clean Person. She's also the author of My Boyfriend, Barfed in My Handbag, and Other Things You Can't Ask Martha. And she's the resident cleaning expert for The New York Times. Jolie, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Hopefully your mother won't hear this. Uh, And uh, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to the world of art. Uh, Jay's going to stay with me. uh, And it turns out Jay was just born to be on this particular program anyway. She'll probably be back tomorrow to talk about something else. Uh, But uh, we're going to talk about uh, artists who use dust in art. These dusty blues are the dustiest ones I know. These dusty blues are the dustiest ones I know. Buried head over heels in the black old dust I had to pack up and go
3: when we think of slavery in the U.S.,
2: we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series,
3: Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten.
0: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Atheneum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
3: I'm just sitting here thinking, even the name End Dust is a lie, right? I mean, they were never going to end dust. Even when human life dwindles to a small spark and our robot overlords are eating the last few cans of End Dust as snack food, there will still be dust. I just thought I'd mention that. Today's show was produced by Dusty Kaplan. The part of Bill Curry was played by Roy Rogers Jr. Google him. And now, back to Colin.
0: All right. Uh, Jay Owens is still with us. Uh, Suzanne Pru is joining us now, uh, artist uh, and sculptor uh, and uh, associate professor at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. Uh, She uses, well, what we should say is that Suzanne uh, either very much likes wordplay or takes things very, very literally. I can't tell which, Uh, but when she does something called hand soap, uh, she takes uh, soap and makes uh, casts of her family's hands out of them. And when she does uh, an installation or work called Dust bunnies. She makes bunnies uh, out of dust, and they're very funny to look at. Uh, Suzanne Pru, welcome to our conversation.
3: Thank you for having me on. So uh,
0: tell us about your dust bunnies. I mean, not the ones in your house, but the ones that you've (laughs) actually made for public consumption. Uh, How did this particular work come about?
3: Uh, Well, I think it's actually interesting that my work um, picks up on two themes today, cleaning and mortality. Um, I got the idea for the dust bunnies um, when Uh, 12 years ago, I had recently had a baby, and um, I was feeling um, pressure of some competing needs, um, needs to start making artwork again, but also um, I'm not a good housekeeper, and having a hard time keeping on top of um, house cleaning. And um, I had previously been uh, creating a series of artworks that play on household puns. Um, and so I thought, well, what if I wonder if I could make dust bunnies, <laughs> and this was at a time when I couldn't seem to control the dust inside my house and the nature inside my house, and at the same time, there were wild rabbits outside that were eating my plantings, um, so I started to collect dust um, sweeping from around the house. Um, I saved the um, vacuum bags and dryer lint, and um, started to create um, bunnies out of dust. So
0: We should point out that you are allergic to dust.
3: I am. It turns out I saw an allergist a couple of years ago and there's only one thing I'm allergic to. I'm very allergic to dust. So. I guess you could say I'm a martyr
0: for my art. Right, this is like the agony and the ecstasy. You're like <laughs> right. you know, Michelangelo, just <laughs> suffering to create this stuff as you weep bitter, dusty tears. Uh, let me just switch back back to Jay for a second here. Um, Jay, I, I know that the British artist Cornelia Parker works in dust. She even has made um, ear earplugs uh, out of, I guess, fluffy, dusty stuff that accumulates in St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, uh, Man Ray worked in dust. Uh, Uh, between the wars Uh, what what is it that and and I know you Jay you want to talk about a Spanish artist in particular who uses dust tell us about that
1: yes that's right so it's um, a guy called Jorge Oteros Pelos who is from Madrid and he's also the professor of historic preservation at Columbia University in New York and he's he's both a sort of an architectural conservationist and an artist and he makes artwork about cleaning buildings and um, was one a couple of years ago about the Houses of Parliament here in London, which was being cleaned for the first time in 200 years. So it had 200 years of city filth had built up on the limestone walls or, the you know, the soot from the fires and the pea super smogs of the you know, 1950s and things. And they were cleaning it with with latex, so putting you couldn't, you know, pressure wash the, the limestone, it would kind of melt great holes into it. So they're cleaning it with this kind of like rubber kind of face. Face mask like you'd use on your skin and they apply the rubber and then peel it off. Um, and he was displayed this in the Houses of Parliament itself as this kind of amazing metaphor, perhaps, for other types of grime and dirt in politics as well.
0: <laughs> so, Suzanne, uh, I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about what kind of uh, metaphor dust is for you. We should say that some of this dust punny stuff, uh, your equivalent of the Medici's, I think, was Febreze. Uh, they uh, wanted to commission some some uh, artwork uh, in dust. But you learned, I think, a lot, or you began to think an awful lot about even how everybody these dust is different. Tell us what dust started to mean to you.
3: Yeah, I did. So as I worked on the series, it would take me about a month and a half to to collect enough dust for one rabbit. So it took about two and a half years for me to create enough um, for a good size installation. And so as I worked on these, I realized that they were really recording time and recording our family's activities. So things like um, a parakeet feathers that um, we no longer have the parakeet. He, um, he escaped um, hair from my children's haircuts back when they let me cut their hair, um, Legos from my son's toy and um, foam from my daughter's bath toys. So it was really, I, I was almost like a forensic scientist, household forensics um, and seeing how these mark the passage of time. And they really, for our family, became more about um, mortality. And I became interested in a universal symbol of the rabbit as um, rebirth. So in a way, I'm taking what's cast off from our family and giving it new life. Um, but then when I got the uh, for Breeze Commission, um, they wanted me to create a series of bunnies for them um, to... Um, promote their air purifiers, Um, I had a tighter timeline for that. And so I enlisted friends and family, and um, people were mailing me their lint and their sweepings. And what became really fascinating to me is how different different people's dryer lint and sweepings are. So um, my friends um, Rick and Sandy Lopez, um, there were little bits of Sandy's artwork and fabric trim in there, and I realized they... um, had a lot of Ricola, uh, cough drops, <laughs> and um, other people had such colorful lint, um, you know, that you just get a sense of their, um, you know, their personality um, through their, their color palette of what they wear. So, um, I, that's, it, it really took on a different meaning beyond just like the funny aspect of it. Um, yes. It became a, a, sort of like Memento Mori. Yes, absolutely.
0: Uh there's actually a character in a novel. I'm struggling to place the novel. Uh, who calls himself the Tod Hassan, which is German for the death rabbit. Um, so bunnies oh. are bunnies are rebirth, but they they also can be quite ominous. Uh, Suzanne Prue, this is fascinating stuff, and uh, we, we we encourage people to go online. We'll put a link to your work uh, on the website uh, for this particular episode, uh, or you can just Google uh, her name, Suzanne P R O U uh, L X, and. Uh, and maybe dust bunnies or something, and you can get to it. It's really, really fascinating stuff. Um, Jay Owens, I'm going to let you have the last word uh, here, and and the question that I'm going to ask, and you can answer it any way that you choose, is, you know, when you think about dust bunnies, in, in a way... You know, it raises question, questions about what counts as dust, right? Because a dust bunny, when an artist like Suzanne Prue is not making it, a dust bunny is our term for this stuff. You look under your bed, and there's this stuff that's fuzz and fibrous, but it's dirty and dusty, too. And, uh, you know, almost at a level of, you know, like Greek, Greek philosophers trying to decide what sorts of things are there. I'm, I'm starting to wonder if I really know what dust is.
1: I think dust really can be anything, and and that's what makes, makes it so interesting. To me, it's kind of, I see it as like the residue of the world. Anything that we cast out, anything that we throw away, any of the bits of the sort of things we don't think about and and, and the waste that we don't consider the externalities environmentally from our manufacturing and from our sort of technological lives, that in one way or another, all of those things are dust. And and what we learn is that dust has to go somewhere that you can't just forget about it. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. You know, somebody has got to do the cleaning up of this. Um, And, you know, it's wonderful when it can be turned into art. One of these dust bunnies, I would love one of those for a pet. but it's your know, dust is really the residue of of absolutely everything in our lives, and you know, ultimately, it's going to be us too.
0: Well, Jay Owens, I just I guess I only have one other question, which is, what else can we have a conversation about? Because this was so incredibly enjoyable. Are you an expert about something else? <laughs>
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. I've really loved this conversation as well. Um, I guess I also know quite a bit about the Internet and the very strange things people do in funny corners of it. So if we ever get a chance to talk memes and social media, then I would love to come back and talk again.
0: All right. Betsy Kaplan will be back in touch. uh, And uh, thanks very much for doing this today. Jay Owens, uh, Suzanne uh, Prue, and, of course, Lee Kerr. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan. This turned into a very dusty labor of love. You can always sort of tell and a producer is being swept up I guess maybe that's everything sounds like a pun all of a sudden but uh, I think she was upswept into this topic and really uh, put a lot into this particular show so thanks very much to you Betsy Kaplan to Kion Wolf and everybody else we'll be back again tomorrow we're always back where would we go Destiny.